This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history. And your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Your stories about the places you live are some of our favorites. And today we have a story from where we live, right here in Oxford, Mississippi. And it's a small town, a small college town, home of Ole Miss, about an hour south of Memphis. Steve Thomas has lived in our town for over 30 years. Today he's here to share with us his story. Take it away, Faith. Steve Thomas is a magician and balloon-making expert. He goes to the local farmer's market and events here in town to make balloons for people. He's our own personal small-town celebrity. Steve has always loved magic, but his path to full-time magician and balloon artist didn't start until his 40s. Steve has had several jobs throughout his career. He started off in radio, where he worked for over 20 years. After his time in radio came to an end, he went to work for FedEx and became a dangerous goods specialist. He worked at FedEx for 14 years until one day, something happened. Just over a decade ago, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. I was at work one night and I picked up a one pound box and turned around and set it down and my shoulder popped. And that was all she wrote for the shoulder. So I ended up having really extensive four different procedures on my right shoulder. And when I got done with that, I had a little tremor. And the doctor eventually figured out what it was. And of course, FedEx said, if you can't come back to work at 100%, don't come back at all. There's several different ways um, that you can manifest the condition. It's basically your body doesn't produce enough dopamine uh, or produces too much dopamine or your dopamine receptors, the things that take it in after it's produced, don't work correctly, or the synapses that go from the muscles to the the brain don't work correctly because of the lack of that. So it's just a long process of trying to figure out what medicine to give you, whether you need more dopamine, whether you need the receptors worked on. And now they're talking about brain surgery, and, you know, I mean, I have the best brain in the world, but I only get one, and I don't want them to go digging around in there and, hook the wrong voltage battery up. It's progressive. But like my doctor said, and I've had three or four doctors because they move off. They're all neuromotor specialists. And they'll tell you Parkinson's doesn't kill you. You don't die from Parkinson's. I mean, you, you may lose the use of an arm or a leg or get tremors. And mine's unilateral. It's in the left side of my brain, which means it affects the right side of my body. Um, about 80% of it's in my arm, 20% in my leg, occasionally a little flutter in my eye. But if you meet me and watch me work, chances are if I'm not moving or doing anything, I'll have a hand in my pocket. That's to kind of hide that little tremor thing that goes on. But it gets to a lot of people, you know. Oh, my, my father was diagnosed at one point in his late years with what they thought was Parkinson's. And he cried. You know, I don't see the purpose in crying. It's non-productive. Steve was not always so relaxed in his response to life. I've always, well, I, you got to realize when I was a kid, I was a ball of nerves. Um, I had an ulcer when I was like six. Yeah, peptic ulcer just from worrying and stress. I learned early on, worrying doesn't change anything. 
It's not going to change the outcome of anything. Just do what you're going to do and be who you're going to be. Bleeding ulcer will do that for you. When they start talking about you got to take this medicine as long as you have it, and I think you know that was a long time ago. I'm sure it may not have even been what, what the doctor said it was, but you, know, you just can't let it get to you. I mean, if if you're going to spend your day that would be an otherwise good day worrying about how tomorrow is going to be, then you just screwed up today. I, I guess I can talk about Parkinson's patients because I am one. You know, relax. I mean, I, I know people who've had Parkinson's two years. And they can't get up out of a wheelchair. And I, you know, mine is minimal. My progression is very minimal. Um, if it hadn't been for the results of a DAT scan, I don't think the doctor would even admit that I had it. But it showed up. You know, they inject you with some radioactive stuff and then stick in a CAT scan machine. After he was diagnosed with Parkinson's, he left FedEx and returned to something he was familiar with magic. I've actually been doing magic and entertaining people for 44 years now. And when I was a kid, I did shows. did my first show when I was nine. It was a paid thing. Um, I remember because my my buddy and I performed together and we told her it was $5. And she gave us each $5. Well, we thought we'd hit a gold mine if you get paid twice as much as you're, you're expecting. So I uh, did that for a while, and then I packed away all the magic when I got into the radio thing because that, you know, I was up at 3 o'clock every morning. And um, after I got married or met my I was after I met my wife. I was at my father's house, and I went in his storage shed, and there's all this magic stuff. I thought, well, why don't I start using some of this? So it went from, you know, a liquor store cardboard box full of magic stuff to, um, I have a thousand square feet in my house now that's nothing but magic. Everything on the walls, you know, everything decorating, all the books, 12 bookcases full of magic books. And somewhere along in there while I was entertaining it, because I did 12 years at Pizza Hut restaurants for kids' night, um, somewhere in there I decided to take up balloon art because they wanted something more conducive to littler kids. So I started doing that probably... 15, 16 years ago. And you've been listening to Steve Thomas, and he's our local celebrity, the magician, the guy who shows up at the parties, entertains the kids. Everybody knows him in town. Struck with Parkinson, a tough disease. He said, I didn't see the purpose in crying. It's nonproductive. And he knew a lot about the kind of person who worries himself to death because he was that person when he was younger. When we come back, more of Steve Thomas's story. And again, if you have a... Steve Thomas-like story in your neighborhood, and you do, uh, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. These are the kind of stories we bring you each and every day. More of Steve Thomas's life, small-town life here in Oxford, Mississippi, here on Our American Stories.
And we return to Our American Stories and to Steve Thomas's story, our local magician and balloon art expert. Let's return to Faith and continue this story. When Steve was young, he had to read a lot of books in order to learn about magic. He would go to the library and you'd check out whatever magic book you could find and you'd absorb everything in that. And um, after you've covered all the magic books, even back then there wasn't much to do, especially here. Um, there's a magic shop in Memphis. My parents would take me there occasionally, and I would learn a couple things from one of the guys working there and work on those. Now I have kids who come over to my house for magic tutoring and magic lessons. Kind of, I guess what comes around goes around. And I'm glad to see some kids getting into magic. Steve performs for all ages, but he has his favorites. You know, there's nothing better than a birthday party for like a 50-year-old lady. And everybody's having a good time. And you can just do things because you don't, with people that age, you don't have to worry about comprehension. Whereas if you have a group of 50 kids and there's some three and four and five-year-olds in there, there's a little comprehension issue. You have to keep gear things toward the, the younger audience. And, you know, I do that. Well, I'm, I live just to make kids smile and laugh. Throughout his magic career, Steve's son and daughter have played roles in some of his shows. There are many times he's taken a show on the road, which provided some great quality time for Steve and his son. Everywhere from furthest north I've been is New London, Missouri. Furthest south is New Orleans and any state in between there. Um, I'm getting kind of old and I'm not big on that you know, two weeks away from home thing. But we used to do library shows every summer. We would book two weeks, and every day we would have two shows in two different towns. And my son and I would load up all our stuff, and we'd go out, go to the town, get a hotel room, go set up the stuff at the library, go have dinner, go home, go back to the hotel, go to sleep, get up the next day, do the show, move on to the next town. Some of our best times and some of the uh, most interesting conversations we've ever had. Yeah, because my son could come up with some lines that would crack you up. He's a hilarious human being. Some of our funniest moments were in New Orleans. One I distinctly remember, he was 11. And I scheduled a meeting with a friend of mine who also does balloons. And he's a clown. And he's goofy. So we're in this little hole in the wall, like five-table bar. Middle of the day we start doing balloons. There's a big pile of balloons on the table, and this drunk blonde girl comes up and says, oh, do you two do balloons? And I looked at my friend, and he looked at me, and we just shook our heads. But uh, so we made some balloons for her, and she gave us a bunch of money. And my son's sitting there being real quiet. So she came time to leave for her to leave, and she walked up, and she gave us some more money. And she had a basketball pick sheet. And I don't know the first thing about sports. I know football is the one that's pointy on the ends. That's the only thing I know. But she came up and she said, I need somebody to help me with this basketball pick sheet. Can you help me in? My buddy Joe, he didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about it. I said, here's your man right here, pointing at my son. He's 11. So he BSed her along with the best of them. And she gave him some money. And she said, my son's 11. She's college. She said, well, I don't know how I can ever thank you. And he looked her square in the eye and he said, how about you give me your phone number? 
And I was speechless. And that's very rare for me to be speechless. I said, boy, what did you say? You were 11 years old. He said, can't hurt to ask. After living in Oxford for so many years and doing magic and balloon art for parties throughout that time, Steve is widely recognized. I met Steve at the coffee shop on the square here in town. If you go there often enough, you'll begin to see a lot of the same people. And there are always kids in there, and they're always coming up to the table talking to me, and they're always waving at me from across the room. And I think that's great. I love making friends, and, and I've seen these kids grow up. I get p- parents who come up to me and say, Oh, yeah, you did my birthday party when I was five. This is my little girl. She's seven. We want to see if you can come do her party. So along with making me feel really old, it makes me feel good that they remember who I am and what I do. Some people who are children's entertainers talk about, oh, the kids are so bad. The kids are so bad. What do you do to keep the kids in line while you're doing shows? What are some of your techniques? Well, my technique is I'm six foot three and I weigh 265 pounds. And I've developed this little goatee that has a purpose. Makes you look a little more grown up. Um, I have an earring in each ear, which I guess makes the kids think you're not like a normal, you're not like dad. So they, they tend to act right. Of course, before our conversation was over, I had to ask Steve to make a balloon for me. He carries balloons with him all the time. And of course I carry balloons with him. Let's, what do we have here? Let's see what happens. Oh, perfect, perfect. And if you ever see me in the coffee shop, whip out a bag of balloons. I'm trying to cheer up a kid who looks like he's having a bad day. And that's another thing that most people don't realize is people see me do balloons and I mouth inflate. Um, Most people don't because it takes a lot of lung power to blow up one of these balloons. And I have uh, apnea. So I sleep with a breathing machine every night. Well, in one of my pulmonologist meetings or appointments, I asked, I told the doctor what I do. And he's like, well, let's test you out. So he tested out my lung capacity. And I have almost double the lung capacity and lung strength from doing this. So you take the green one and you twist it and you twist it and you twist it. I could give you a ballooning lesson. Next time I see you in the coffee shop, I'll bring out a bag of balloons. It looks less creepy if somebody's sitting there with you doing it. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are fantastic with balloons. I have friends all over the world who can make life-size motorcycles. And, well, that's great, but that takes like three days. Um, I would rather make something quick and easy and... I think my entertainment value comes more in the interaction between me and the child or the parents than it does the fact that your balloon looks exactly like, you know, Ronald Reagan or whoever, whatever you're trying to make. (laughs) Then you take the heart, stretch the heart, tweak the heart. And people watch me do balloons a lot of times. They'll, they'll all carry on a conversation the same time I'm doing it. You're, like, you're not even watching what you're doing. Anything I make, I can make behind my back or without looking at what I'm doing. 
Ta-da! And this goes on your arm. I'll save it for you. I won't walk out with it. And, you know, that will put a smile on a teacher's face, a child's face, a mom's face. Doesn't matter, 80-year-old lady. I think it's that you can be creative with them. But, you know, if you give a just a round balloon, and I don't recommend doing this because even I have my limitations. Uh, I won't do a balloon for anybody under four because of the whole choking hazard. Um, if I know the child and I know that they're not going to, they're smart enough to not be sticking their fist in their mouth, I'll do a balloon for them. But if you give like a five-year-old a round balloon, just a round balloon with no picture on it or anything, they'll play with it until it pops. They'll play with it for hours. And I don't know what it is. Just, what do they say? It's a, uh, it's a gift. It's a bag of my breath. That's our local magician and balloon art expert, Steve Thomas. And I'm Faith Buchanan for Our American Stories. It's just a bag of my breath. Uh, it's much more than that. Any of us could try this. I've tried a hundred times. In fact, this year, I now have a new New Year's resolution. It's to get Steve Thomas to teach me how to do balloons. I live just to make kids smile and laugh, he said. And I try to cheer up a kid who's having a bad day. Uh, a great story about a guy who deals with, well, a really tough and slow and debilitating disease called Parkinson is by ignoring it and just going on about his day cheerfully making other people's days happier. Steve Thomas's story, a beautiful story from our small town here in Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis, a beautiful, a fantastic place to raise a family and to enjoy sports and all the things that matter in life and that are beautiful in life. And if you have a story about your town, big city, small town, something in between, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Steve Thomas's story here on Our American Stories. continue here with our American stories and here on this show you know we love music and we've talked about this great American singer on the show before as part of our series this day in music history called the first lady of song Ella Fitzgerald was the most popular female jazz singer and song vocalist in the United States for more than a half century she interpreted much of the great American songbook and she worked with all the jazz greats from Duke Ellington, Count Basie, and Nat King Cole, to Frank Sinatra, Dizzy Gillespie, and Benny Goodman. Lady Ella, as she was also dubbed, was the first African-American woman to win a Grammy. And after taking home her first two Grammys in 1958, she would go on to win 11 more. Most don't know the tragedy of her upbringing, though, that growing up trying to make it on the streets of New York, the young Ella helped her family out with financial struggles by working as a messenger running numbers and acting as a lookout for a brothel. But her first career aspiration, she wanted to be a dancer. But like many epic American stories, her talent, it could not be hidden. After her mother's death in the early 1930s, Ella had tried to make it on her own and was living on the streets. 
Still harboring dreams of becoming an entertainer, she entered an amateur contest at Harlem's Apollo Theater. Ella blew the audience away when she sang the Hoagie Carmichael tune, Judy, as well as the object of my affection. And she went on to win the contest's $25 first place prize. This was the performance that launched her career. Today, we offer you an ode to the First Lady of Song, a compilation of some of her performances and through the lens of a poem written about Ella. Here's Sarah Moore performing that piece. I took one look at you That's all I meant to do And then my heart stood still A poem for Ella Fitzgerald By Sonia Sanchez When she came on this stage, this Ella, there were rumors of hurricanes and over the rooftops of concert stages, the moon turned red in the sky. It was Ella, Ella, queen had come and words spilled out, leaving a trail of witnesses smiling. Amen, amen, a woman, a woman. She began this three-aged woman, nightingales in her throat, and squads of horns came out to greet her. Streams of violins and pianos splash their welcome, and our stained glass silences, our braided spaces unraveled, opened up, said, Who's that coming? Who's that knocking at the door? Whose voice lingers on that stage gone mad with perdido, perdido, perdido? I lost my heart in Toledo. Whose voice is climbing? Up this morning, chimney smoking with life, carrying her basket of words. A tisket, a tasket, my little yellow basket. I wrote a letter to my mommy, and all the way I dropped it. Was it red? No, 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 no. Was it green? No, 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 no. Was it blue? No, 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 no. Voice rescuing razor-thin lyrics from hopscotching dreams. We first watch her navigating an Apollo stage amid high-stepping yellow legs. We watched her watching us. Shiny and pure woman, sugar and spice woman. Her voice a nun's whisper. Her voice pouring out. Guitar-thickened blues. Her voice a faraway horn questioning the wind. And she became Ella. First Lady of Tongues, Ella cruising our veins, voice walking on water, crossed in prayer, she became holy. A thousand sermons concealed in her bones as she raised them in a symphonic shudder, carrying our sighs into her bloodstream. This voice, chasing the morning waves, this Ella-Tonian voice soft like four layers of lace, when I die, Ella, tell the whole joint, please, please don't talk about me when I'm gone. I remember waiting one night for her appearance, audience impatient at the lateness of musicians. 
I remember it was April and the flowers ran yellow. The sun downpoured yellow butterflies and the day was yellow and silent. All of spring held us and a single drop of blood. she appeared on stage, she became nut arching over us, feet and hands placed on the stage, music flowing from her breasts. She swallowed the sun, sang confessions from the evening stars, made earth divulge her secrets, gave birth to skies in her song, remade the insistent air, and we became anointed, found inside her bop. Lady, 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 be good. Be good to me, to you, to us all. Cause we just some lonesome babes in the woods. Hey, lady, sweet Ella, lady, 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 be good. Ella, 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 lady, be good, good, good. And what a beautiful reading by Sarah Moore, Sonia Sanchez's beautiful 1934 poem celebrating Ella Fitzgerald. And Ella was certainly in a class of her own. She redefined jazz and soul for the nation, and she did so while breaking down racial barriers and going against the odds in every conceivable way. No great story is devoid of tragedy, by the way, and Ella sure had her own. She battled drugs, divorce and racism throughout her career and her rise to stardom. And she also suffered from diabetes, which ultimately took her life in 1996. But what she remembered for? That voice. There's nothing like it. That scatting. The performances. She left audience after audience with an experience unlike anything they'd ever known before. There were those musicians that joined trends, and there were those that set trends. But Ella still belonging to a deep and collaborative musical heritage, transform music forever. And while it is her rendition of Mac the Knife in 1960 that broke her into the pop charts, she was still going strong well into the 70s, playing concerts across the globe, doing shows with Frank Sinatra, recording with Duke Ellington, and singing with a Benny Goodman orchestra. She recorded more than 200 albums and sang some 2,000 songs in her lifetime and sold 40 million albums. And while Mel Torme described her as the high priestess of song, in Bing Crosby's own words, quote, man, woman, or child, Ella is the greatest of them all, end quote. Ella Fitzgerald's story, her music, in a poem, Sonia Sanchez's poem, again, a beautiful job here by Sarah Moore, and let's go out with one of my favorites. It's Ella singing the Gershwin classic, Summertime. Summertime. 
This is Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and sciences, and straight to history, and your stories, too. In fact, some of our very best work has come from you. Send your stories to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll take a listen, we'll produce them, and we'll play them. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. And by the way, our next segment is about, well, our favorite subject here on the show. We talk the most in the studio about food, but on the show, most of our content, the biggest category is music. And by the way, about everything, from Sinatra to Miles Davis to Merle Haggard, Whitney Houston, Nirvana, everybody. There's no music we prefer over another, including Vladimir Horowitz's story, the great Russian pianist. It's all good, and music is music. And we're about to take a short yet fascinating trip down a road that leads to modern-day hip-hop. In the beginning, the hip-hop scene was a raw, raw experience. It was an underground music expression that was light years away from the commercial enterprise that it became. But one music producer took the low-budget, lo-fi rawness of hip-hop and put his own polished spin on it, making it accessible to the world. And the world has never been the same since. To tell this story... We must first take two steps back to the early 1970s. Here's Greg Hengler. In his 1998 book, For the Record, Sly and the Family Stone, Joel Selvin writes, There are two types of black music. Black music before Sly Stone and black music after Sly Stone. Though their influence on hip-hop wouldn't be fully realized until the birth of the genre, Sly and the Family Stone had a major impact on hip-hop artists and their musical tastes, as well as the music that they would end up creating. Here's music historian Jason King. Just as the rise of female singer-songwriters in the 1970s meant that people like Joni Mitchell were able to produce their own vision of who they were in the recording studio, you also have the rise of African-American artists who start to use the recording studio in a way that's incredibly creative and very different than the past. People like Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, and Curtis Mayfield, and particularly, I think, Sly from Sly and the Family Stone. These artists became the producers themselves. Here's record producer Arthur Baker. He was his own boss. You couldn't think of anyone telling Sly what to do in the studio. Here's Q-Tip from the hip-hop group A Tribe Called Quest. I can talk about Sly and the Family Stone for a very long time. Okay, play it. Gang. Sly Stone brought in a song craftsmanship to funk. 
that wasn't there. He put his own spin on it, and out came something really unique and bold and just fresh. Here's drummer Questlove, who performs with The Roots for The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. Because of the ongoing conflicts between Sly and his family Stone, he wound up doing his fifth record, There's a Riot Going On, by himself. Here's music historian Oliver Wang. Slystone was such a huge musical experiment. He would try playing with things that most other musicians hadn't thought about. He did it like what now we'd call a home studio. That's Sly playing bass, that's Sly playing guitar, Sly playing keyboards. For instance, he's programming, drum programming on the air, which is like early kind of hip hop. Some uptight producer would go, no, I don't want that. That sound, that doesn't sound like real drums. That was the point. It didn't, but it was something funkier. What he did in 1971 will be the gold standard for how musicians will create their music 10 years later. Here's Run DMC's Daryl McDaniels. The significance of the black musician, songwriter, um, singer, producer, whatever, to me, it all boils down to communicating the lives we live. Here's music historian Todd Boyd. It's a generation of people who don't have access to musical instruments, who don't have musical training. They're using music to create new music. We took what was available and created hip hop. Why you serve? Take the train to the plane, drop school on church. It's like that. With hip hop, the role of the producer changes completely. You have producers sampling and using drum machines. Here's musicologist Fredera Hadley. The best producers, they have this ability to create a signature tapestry that makes all of these bits and pieces actually sound like an original composition. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. the 1990s, Dr. Dre basically put West Coast hip-hop on the map. He was notorious for having this sound that was unlike anything else. Here's hip-hop producer Hank Shockley. Gangsta rap. That music took on a life of its own. And it gave the West Coast and L.A. scene its own voice. Here's record producer Tricky Stewart. I remember the shift when N.W.A. and Dre came into the scene. Sonically, it was polished, but at the same time, it was like this super hard West Coast sound. I'm dropping flavor, my behavior is hereditary, but my technique is very necessary. Blame it on Ice Cube, because the it get funky when you got a subject and a predicate. And you felt Dre's presence as one of the greatest hip-hop producers of all time, if not the greatest. Here's music executive Jimmy Iovine. 
When we started Interscope, I didn't know anything about running a business, and I knew even less about hip-hop. So this fellow John McClain was an A&R guy, brought this tape and said, we have to sign these guys. I said, who is it? He goes, it's Dr. Dre, it's his solo record, it used to be an NWA. I said, okay. I said, I don't really know a lot about it, but, you know, play it for me. One, two, three, and to the folks. Snoop Doggy Dog and Dr. Dre is at the door. And I didn't know a lot about it. I didn't understand the music, but I understood the sound. So Dre comes in. I said, Dre, who recorded this record? He said, I did. I said, no, no, not who produced it. Who engineered it? He said, I did. I said, wow, this guy's on to something. Here's Dr. Dre. Everybody has to have their own sound. You know what I'm saying? That's what makes it different, you know? And I'm a perfectionist. Because no matter how hard you work in the studio, no matter what you do, you don't know if people are going to dig it. It's, it's very easy to make a hip-hop record. It's not easy to make a good hip-hop record. When Dre came in with The Chronic, he was using live musicians and recording it very sparse. He's finding samples that we all overlook, pulling from funk and G-funk. You know, you listen to the sample on G thing. Here's RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan. He's hearing things that the average ear will never encounter in a song. And then when he hears it, he'll pull it out. He will pull it out. Here again is Questlove. I'll admit something to you. I was one of the initial naysayers of Dr. Dre's The Chronic was like everything I didn't want hip-hop to be. It was clean, louder, bigger. I wanted my hip-hop dirty. This DIY approach, this very low-budget, lo-fi approach to making music. That's what I felt hip-hop should and always be. It took me 10 years to really understand where Dr. Dre was going. And now that I make records, now I understand why this album is so important. What he did for hip-hop and for sampling is that he proved that you can make a record of the highest quality as a hip-hop producer. Besides crafting and popularizing G-Funk, a.k.a. Gangsta Rap, Dr. Dre is the founder and CEO of Aftermath Entertainment, and in 2008, he released his first brand of headphones, Beats by Dr. Dre. It was sold to tech giant Apple in 2014 for a reported $3.2 billion, the most expensive Apple takeover purchase ever. Dre's net worth spiked to an estimated $740 million. Dr. Dre got married to his wife, Nicole, in 1996. They have two children together, a son named Truth, and a daughter named Truly. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And boy, we learn things here on this show. What a story about an American life, an American musician and producer. Dr. Dre's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And today we have one of our regular features, the Relationship Hour, which is brought to us by Communio and told by J.P. DeGans. Yvonne and Richard Rice share their story with us today. Here's J.P. Yvonne and Richard are extraordinary people who came from troubled childhood homes. Yvonne's mother was married five different times. Her father was husband number four. Yvonne spent much of her childhood with her dad to escape some of the chaos in her mother's home. But her dad had his own struggles. He had agoraphobia, an anxiety disorder that causes one to avoid places that might cause panic or embarrassment. So many with this condition live isolated lives, staying home as much as possible. Growing up in such a household, Yvonne spent a lot of time by herself. Really what I remember the most about my childhood was loneliness. I was very lonely and I was very depressed. I didn't know that was the word back then was depressed, but I was very depressed. And um, I ended up going uh, around the age of 15, going and living with my mom in Connecticut. And there was um, a, a really horrible thing happened and I was attacked and hurt. And I ended up then moving back to Jacksonville. And it made my dad's mental illness of being scared to go out and being scared that anything would ever happen to me worse. And um, at that time, um, there was a new girls school here in Jacksonville and I started going there. I uh, you know, had a lot of fear because of the attack and I didn't want to go to a school where there were boys and girls. And um, this school was for girls who were at risk and it was wonderful for me. It ended up being such a wonderful experience. Um, these women, I'm still friends with some of them today. Uh, matter of fact, I'm going to see one next week, and this is 20, you know, 30 years. Oh my gosh, 30 years later. Uh, maybe 32 years later. Oh my word, how old am I? So um, anyways, but these ladies just spoke into me, and I remember the first time um, someone said to me, Yvonne, you are so smart, and I didn't know I was smart. Um, one lady uh, in particular, I remember her saying, you are so pretty, and I had not really heard those words before. And so it was just these ladies spoken to me, and that's really where I started finding out who Yvonne is. Um, who Yvonne is broken, um, you know, I was as low as you could get uh, because of the attack. And so they told me based upon um, my school situation that it would take me about five years to complete high school. And I ended up completing high school in six months. Um, because when you have people who believe in you, you exceed. Richard's upbringing had its own set of challenges. His dad wasn't around much. And at the age of nine, his mother passed away. We moved, uh, my, the three youngest, my younger brother, my older sister, we moved down south with my grandmother and she, she raised us. Although she was an alcoholic um, and she was the type of alcoholic when she drank, 
she would get angry, and that angry uh, anger would toward, turn usually towards me because I was the oldest male, and um, you know, for whatever reason, she seemed to want to vent on me and blame me for all the problems or whatever. But um, I can see the good, you know, out of her. She was she put us in a, a, a good Christian school, and she had to pay for that. And all she had was her. Um, she worked for a, uh, a telephone uh, company for many years, and that was she lived on her retirement. She did get money, of course, from the Social Security for us, but she didn't have to put us in. A, uh, so you know, I feel there was providential uh, ways in there that God was uh, has used her. Uh, so anyway, she put she put us in there, and that's where I learned about God and uh, as a young person. But um, you know, uh, I was pretty much involved in sports, normal, you know, kid as far as played tennis, played uh, baseball, and uh, enjoyed that. And but as, as I got older, she would um, almost like um, like emotional or physical. Uh, it was more of a. a pull you down type. When she'd correct you, it was more of a, uh, that type of uh, abuse. But um, as I got older, you know, I learned to stand up and, you know, say, look, this, this ain't right. You know, we're not, I'm not going to sit here and listen to this all day, you know, for, you know, whatever. I felt like all day, but usually it was anywhere from 10 minutes to 30 minutes, and that was a long time. And um, usually after that, you had to, uh, you know, go in your room. So Richard's being, I'll just jump in here. Um, he's probably downplaying the abuse more and not being as honest about it, it was horrible. And she beat him with a tennis racket. And then, she, and then he had to stay in the room for long periods of time without food. And she was a very cruel woman. And even though she did good of sending them to school at a private school, um, there was a lot of cruelty. Also, um, his father um, killed himself about a year after his mom died. His mom died tragically and his dad died tragically. His mom was leaving a bar and she was drunk. The um, bartender had told her, Mary, can't, I'm not gonna serve you anymore. You've had too much to drink. And um, she walked out of a bar drunk and walked right in front of a bus. And then dad, a year later, who was also an alcoholic, um, shoots himself and ends his life. Lots of um, addiction, alcoholism on that side of the family. You're listening to Yvonne and Richard's story and we tell you all the time, marriage is two separate people with two separate walks coming together, strangers sometimes to themselves, let alone to each other, and all the trauma and baggage that comes along. Our Relationship Hour story continues. Yvonne and Richards here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our relationship hour here on Our American Stories. And today we have the story of Yvonne and Rich and their journey as a couple. The Rices learned that their son from a young age had an addictive personality. As it continued to manifest itself, they struggled to know what to do. And my goodness, this is happening in families across America and how this kind of thing tests and can often break a marriage. Let's return to the story. As Hunter got older, his dabbling with drugs turned into a spiraling addiction, something that took over Hunter's life and his parents' lives. When I look back on it, it was tripping up the doctors that he came from such a good home. They really needed something to be wrong, and there wasn't. You know, he they kept thinking he had some trauma, and he was like, no, no trauma, I just want to get high. Like, he was real honest with them. I have to appreciate his honesty. He said, no, my parents are great, but man, I want to get stoned, and I want, you know. And so it was like, oh my goodness. So at 15, he goes to his first treatment center. And even at 15, as an adolescent, you can leave treatment centers. They cannot lock you down. And so after a few days, he left the treatment center and we went out looking for him. And little did we know that that was just gonna be one of the first times um, I'm gonna cry. (laughs) It was just, one of the first times that we would go out looking for him. I remember thinking when I have kids that the um, the worst thing that could ever happen is not knowing where your kid is. I don't know that death is as bad as just not knowing if they're okay, if they're being hurt or tormented or... And so I remember driving up and down the street when we were looking for him and just being terrified. And then when we saw him, we weren't even mad at him for leaving the treatment center. We were so thankful that he was okay. Um, We still didn't understand at that time how severe, Hunter's been severe from day one, but we just didn't know what it was. And so we homeschooled during that time. That was gonna be the only way to get him through school. And he did fine with homeschooling. we did some over. Uh, we did some medications through the psychiatrist. None were a good idea. None of them. I had to lock up the medications in my bedroom. I would wake up in the middle of the night to Hunter in our bedroom looking for the medicine. Um, it was just constant stuff like that. I mean, I think even some of it I've blocked out. And so then um, at 18, the holidays are always tough for some reason for addicts. And um, at 18, we had to ask him to leave because it was just, and we are not those people, but um, he was just so out of control and causing such chaos in the home that um, my daughter and I went to church and Richard stayed here and waited for Hunter to come home on his birthday. It was on a Wednesday. And he asked Hunter, he said, Hunter, you got to pack up your stuff and leave because you keep doing stuff in our home that's not okay. And he was putting us at risk. And that was really hard. And I'm really proud of Richard to do it. I didn't have the guts back then to do it. I could do it now, but not back then. And so our son ended up um, just, you know, going to a friend's house and doing that kind of thing. But then he ended up going to a halfway house. And two months later, he graduated from high school, which we homeschooled through our church. 
After graduating from high school, Hunter was in and out of jail, halfway houses, and treatment centers. One day after going missing, Hunter called his parents. And he said, Mom, I, I need some help. I'm really bad. And um, so that's when heroin had, I don't know how long heroin had been in the picture, but it was really in the picture at that time. And when we went and um, got him, got up with them, he was very skinny and he was really sick. And at that time, we sent him out of state to a place. And I remember it was right before the holidays. And I thought, um, those Norman Rockwell paintings, you know, of the perfect Christmas. Like my family just wasn't turning out like I thought it should and that Hunter wouldn't be here. But I remember someone telling me that if I give him up in these hard times, that maybe I can have him in the future. You know, give him, I know it's hard right now, he's young, but you know, it's a lot easier to send him off out of state right before Christmas than to bury him. So we did it. Um, we did expect a miracle. We wanted him to come back changed. And that's not our story. It, there wasn't much change at all. And um, he came back and then just within a week was in another treatment facility in North Carolina. Hunter claimed to be doing better, so they went to go visit him in North Carolina. But when they got there, they realized he really wasn't doing any better. And soon, Yvonne understood the manipulation aspect of addicts through a support program for families. And um, I learned that if his mouth, well, how I knew he was lying is his lips were moving, you know, and I thought, oh, that's not nice. But it was true that it was just when he was in the addict brain, when he was letting that rule him, lies and manipulation. So um, within a few more years, I mean, he had just been hospitalized and jail and I and let me tell you about jail I never ever thought we would have a child that go, that went to jail and I could you can call it spiritual pride and call it pride I don't care what it was my children weren't going to jail maybe your children were going to jail but not my child and I mean we did things we did bible study in our house with our kids and we did all these great things never had alcohol in our home like we were the teetotalers and yet we're standing in line with some people who weren't great parents Right. I and mean, we were standing in line with people who themselves look like they just got out of prison. Like I'm just saying, so it has shocked me in the past if a friend ever called me and said their child was in jail. I'd be like, what? You know, and now I'm like, oh, good. Oh, it's such an answer to prayer, you know, because usually it's an addict and we need them to get stabilized. That stability, at least in Hunter's case so far, has not lasted. He has overdosed many times and one early overdose sticks out in his parents' memories. Yvonne called me and said, I think Hunter's gotten into something and I had some medicine from my back. It was a cream and he mixed something together. And so when I came home, he's sitting here on the couch and I'm like, what's wrong? And he's kind of like passing out. And I'm like, this is crazy. And then he's like, I felt like he's just barely breathing and I'm like, Yvonne's like, we need to call uh, 911 because I tried to shake him and try to wake him up. He wouldn't wake up. And so we um, 
we called the police and they came in here and they, they actually hit him in his chest, tried to wake him up and he would not wake up. And so um, they got the amulets in here and he started coming to some and they just said, oh, we've got to take him to the hospital, you know, because this is the first time I've ever seen, you know, Hunter this bad, you know, in my mind, um, you know, it's starting to take a toll on his body and mind and everything. And so they took him to the hospital and uh, I remember the doctor was tell, telling us, look, you have a drug addict for a son. That's the first time, you know, I've ever heard, you know, it was like, oh, those words are so hurtful and strong and powerful. And so I was like, wow, Hunter, you know, you really have. So eventually he, they, they either gave him something, Narcan or something to, to get him out of it. And he started getting better. Uh, but that was the reality when it came into our home, you know, strong. We knew it was, it's always been around and we seemed somewhat high, but we, when he went out like that, you know, almost unconscious, or he was unconscious, um, that's when it kind of really brought home reality that, look, this boy is in it deep. And you're listening to Rich and Yvonne and the effect that this struggling son, this addict son, is going to have on their relationship we're going to learn more about in the next segment. So when we come back, more of this remarkable story our relationship hour, Yvonne and Rich's story. Thanks to Communio, here on Our American Stories. continue here on our American stories and Richard and Yvonne's story, our relationship hour, and we deal with, well, real life marriages and real life problems here on this show and real life stories, because that's what you've come to expect. Now we return to J.P. DeGance for the rest of the story. Richard and Yvonne were just telling us about the time their son Hunter overdosed in their home. Here again is Yvonne. He had eaten a half a cup of this back cream that had morphine in it. And so to know that he was that desperate to get high, that there was nothing in our house. We didn't even have NyQuil in here anymore. And yet he found that back cream. We had never even thought about that back cream. When, we, when the ambulance took him to the hospital, the doctor actually called him a junkie. And I just remember going, and she said, only three things happen to a junkie. You get institutionalized, you go to prison, or you die. And I said, no ma'am, there's another one, and that's or you recover. And you know, it really upset me, and our daughter was there, she was young, and to hear, you know, your brother's a junkie, like that was so upsetting, and you know, this is a kid who went to summer camp at church. I mean, he did all the church stuff like everyone else. He was homeschooled. Um, he knew. He knows the Bible. He knows the scriptures. And yet none of that was going to change his brain chemistry. A couple of months ago, I told Richard, 
I can't have him on the street anymore. It's driving me crazy that he's out there, that I don't know where he's at. Um, he's, he doesn't look like the pictures here. You know, he's got a tooth missing. He's very skinny. Um, sometimes he has sores on him or a rash. Um, his liver has suffered greatly. And when we saw him in the hospital um, in July, I think it was in August, he was in the hospital a lot, back to back. He, our son was found like just passed out in front of someone's front lawn, discolored because of the drugs in his system. He was then found a week later in a um, grocery store parking lot, again, not breathing, and they brought him back to life. He was found again a week later. I mean, it just, it March and this summer was really tough because it was just happening over and over. And there was a, there's been times here lately that we've asked God to just take because he's suffering so bad and we are too and but that hasn't happened he's still here and um it's just it's hard because we try to go on about our day like everything's okay but it's playing it back in my head every time I I get a text or I get a phone call or if the police drive by real slow I feel like that's it this is it we have prepared um, her to know that we might have to bury our son. We've talked about it. We have a plan in place because we have a terminally ill kid, you know, who can't seem to get it together. The life of an addict becomes a cycle. Hunter has been in and out of rehab or jail some 50 times in the last few years. Richard and Yvonne try to be there for Hunter when he asks for help. Talked with him some, and then I talked with Yvonne and I talked, and we said, well, yeah, he's at that point again where he's wanting help, so we got him into another facility, uh, and, you know, he, within a few few months, he got recharged, and he's back out there again, and there's nothing we can do as far as, you know, changing that. Uh, I, I'm more of a, you know, just a standard father that just says, you know, you're going to do it until you get tired of it. And Yvonne's, you know, she's more of a one to be active and involved. In it. And I'm like, Yvonne, this is just, you know, hurts me, it hurts you. You know, why are you, you know, it's, you got to learn to step back. You know, you sure call him, talk to him and you know, maybe go to lunch with him now and then. But, you know, you're only hurting yourself and, and you're trying to push Hunter to be something he's nice. You're making him angry, you're making him upset. And these are all my logical things that are coming to my mind. I also have to have grace because she has to handle it the way she wants to and the way she's going to, but I can't let her go but so far. The ups and downs of life with an addict can cause a tremendous amount of emotional stress on their loved ones, both in terms of the terrible things they see and the unknown things they fear. Such trials can drive the couple apart or it can bring them closer together. 
Richard and Yvonne, as different as they are, have chosen to turn towards each other. It's really been intense for about four or five years now. And so Richard now though was like, wow, I have to be more involved because Yvonne's not making it, Yvonne's falling apart. And so during, during that time, he though had to pull away a little bit just to protect himself. And he doesn't always do it well or right. And so I remember just coming and talking to him and saying, look, either it's okay that we deal with it differently, but we're either on the same page or this isn't gonna work because I am not going through this life alone. I am not going to the hospital again by myself or jail or whatever it is. And, and you know, we'll get on the same page of how, like, let's sit down and talk about it when it happens. Cause see, these are traumatic events. Like we get a call from the hospital. We don't get to say, oh, well, Saturday night Hunter's gonna be in the hospital. I mean, this always happens when you have other stuff going on. And Richard said, yes, I'll be there. And I said, I need you there for me. This is what I need. And he said, yes, I'll be there. Well, what was interesting is just a few days later, he got the opportunity to be there because Hunter was in the hospital. And we both went. And, you know, I think, too, he got to see, oh, my gosh, Yvonne's been doing this a long time. No wonder she's worn out. Like, I've been doing this from the very beginning. And it's so hard to watch someone in front of you killing themselves. And you can't do anything about it. Nothing. And I grieve. I grieve terribly. <laughs> Nothing has been normal with him. We haven't done anything normal with him in so long. I mean, besides taking him to eat, we can't have normal conversations. He doesn't, the addiction won't allow him to care about anybody. When he stopped by the other day because his phone broke, he had lost all of his clothes. He only has one outfit. He was in the backyard with the water hose washing his hair and drinking out of the water hose. And I just thought this shouldn't be. That's my son. <laughs> so I had him come inside and eat and drink. He was so dehydrated. He's probably lost 40 pounds in a month. I just can't believe how fast he can lose that much weight. And uh, I offered him help. I gave him some ideas of how I could help him with a treatment center or a halfway house or even a homeless shelter. And he said, no, mom, I don't want that. So he... I walked him outside as he left on foot. He doesn't drive. He hasn't had a car. He had a truck for two months, and that was it. And that was at the beginning of the year. And he drove, he walked away. And as he's walking down the road, he's yelling, he's yelling black, back at me, I love you, Mom. You know, and I, and I think, is this the last time I'm ever going to see him? That's how it is with Hunter. You do feel like this might be the last time. <laughs> and um, it just really hurts. I mean, it's like a grief that we can't get out of. It's like torment. 
How do Richard and Yvonne continue on in their life and marriage amidst such grief? We're in it for the long haul, you know what I mean? We're, we're committed no matter what, you know, it, it doesn't matter if the world decides they're all gonna go somewhere. And, I mean, I feel like I'm committed, you know, it's, it's not, nothing's gonna stop me. I mean, sure, it hurts and um, you wish you could change it, but at the same time, you know, you try to make the best of it. You know, you, it, it's like, we're still gonna enjoy life to the point that we can enjoy life with having these disabilities in our life, having a son uh, live and act like that. You've been listening to Yvonne and Richard Rice and the story of their struggles with their son, Hunter, and how they keep it together. There are times lately, Yvonne said, we've asked God just to take him. He's suffering so bad, we are too. And yet these two keep it together. They show each other grace. And all the couple together are teaching us all how to, how to struggle, how to get through struggles together. Richard and Yvonne's story here on Our American Stories. And you can go to communio.org to find out how to heal marriages, deal with deep and profound marriage problems and issues. This is Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories. We're listening to the story of Yvonne and Rich, brought to us by Communio, and they work hard to heal broken marriages and are remarkable at it. Go to communio.org to learn more, and to J.P. DeGance's organization. And by the way, he's bringing us all of these stories. We left off learning about Rich and Yvonne's difficult childhoods, the lives they led before they met. Let's get back to the story. Their childhoods were tough, but Richard and Yvonne both came to know the Lord and started spending time together at Bible study. Anyway, so she gets up and she goes to the refrigerator and I'm like, oh, now here's my move right here. So, so I run around the other side and I said, hey, uh, I'm Richard. And she said, oh, uh, I'm Yvonne. I said, oh, I know who you are. I said, my, my brother, y'all went out last week. And uh, so she's like, yeah, yeah. So, um, so right then, you know, I could, I could you know, feel the, the, the good vibes and everything going on. You know, it was like, uh, she might be, you know, worth checking out. You know what I mean? So, um, so then we did a few things with the church as far as uh, little things here and there. But then I could feel it in my heart. I was like, man, I really got to ask this girl out. So I was thinking, I don't want to be rejected. You know, like most men, you don't want to be rejected. So I was like, I'm going to ask her to something, you know, godly or spiritual and she's going to feel bad because she didn't go although she she might want to reject me but she can't reject god so some way uh you know i had been going to this uh city rescue uh mission helping out there and so i was like i'm gonna ask her to go to that and uh so then 
I said, uh, can you wait for me outside in the parking lot? You know, I'm paying my bill and, and she was with her friend and I was like, I gotta get her friend away from her because I don't wanna ask her and her reject me right in front of her friend. <laughs> so some way, I don't remember, I was in the parking lot with her and I said, hey, I'm going to this um, uh, rescue mission and you know, I'll be talking and you know, we can uh, you know, hang out some if you want, you'd like to go with me. And she said, yeah, that'd be nice. So um, once I, once we, we got to the rescue mission and I started sharing, I was like, I'm giving my testimony like I'm in a bent, like I'm wanting someone to come alongside me, which is kind of weird because I usually just give my testimony. I, I share straight up, you know, how God, but it, I could feel it. I could sense it in her heart that it was almost like God was doing this, putting all this together. And I was like, oh, this is neat. It was almost effortless too. You know what I mean? It was like, it was like it was just coming together the way, the way it all was meant to be. Richard and Yvonne were soon married, and they were ready for their happily ever after. But considering how much they had each been through growing up, it's not surprising that they brought their own traumas, their own baggage, and their own ways of dealing with things into their marriage. Richard saw himself as the man of the house and expected Yvonne to obey. Yvonne was finding her footing in the world after an isolated childhood with her loving but mentally ill father. And these, in so many ways, these newlyweds were really opposites. In the early years, it was really hard because I thought, well, if you want to run the roost so bad, why am I working? You know, and he struggled for some years with work, not, not really being able to bring home I was the, the um, provider back then, and that was hard for him. I know it really hurt, you know, hard. It's hard when men go through that transition. Um, and it was probably, that was probably one of the, I'd say the hardest times of our marriage. Um, because, you know, you start questioning, why am I with this person? Really, I mean, why am I? And Richard and I have really discussed that even in the last few years. and. In our heart of hearts, it's that we truly choose to be here. Um, we don't have to be here. We are so individual. Like, I don't say, oh, he's my rock. He is not my rock. <laughs> I'm not his rock. You know, Jesus truly is our rock. But what we, we choose to be here, I want his companionship. I love um, intellectually how we can talk about the Lord and how he sees things differently than I do. Also, I just like to talk to him about other things. I'll tell him about a situation I have with a girlfriend or a situation at work and just to hear his point of view because he thinks differently than I do. And I have learned to appreciate that and not let that be, um, you know, a sense of contention. While they clearly appreciate their differences, these very differences can also be a source of tension. When it comes to showing love through gifts, Yvonne wants beautiful things like flowers. Richard has gone with a bit more practical approach. So, you know, he just didn't have any of this modeled for him um, at all. Now, I didn't have it modeled for me either. However, it's in me to be a gift giver and to be attuned to holidays and just, you know, I'm real intentional. So I let him know, I said, let me tell you something right now, buddy, 
you better get me a gift and I'm going to tell you the, the, the times I need gifts for. Well, he did okay. I mean, he did the best he could. He would get really practical stuff. One time he got me a can opener. You got me a can opener. I mean, I'm just thinking right now I should have left you just for that. So, and an umbrella. An umbrella. Anyways, but those are those romantic gifts. Clearly, these two very different people experienced some conflict in the early years of their marriage, but neither knew what was to come. Having had such difficult childhoods themselves, Richard and Yvonne had both hoped that if they raised their kids with all the love and structure they wished they could have had, everything would turn out great. However, from an extremely young age, their son Hunter showed signs of an addictive personality. The first time our son took codeine, he was actually nine. He was on a cough syrup with codeine because he has asthma and he didn't like the taste of it. And after I gave him his cough syrup about 45 minutes later, he came back and asked for more. And I said, why would you want more? It tastes horrible. And um, I never thought about the feeling he was getting. And he said, I want more because it makes my brain feel ooh so good. And I remember going, oh my gosh, you know, because codeine doesn't do that to me. Um, but I don't like any, um, drugs like that. I don't, I'm one, Richard and I both, we don't take, like when the doctor gives you hydrocodone or Oxycontin or anything for any surgeries, we're, we're just not those people, you know, that want that. And, but for our son, his brain lights up. And so, you know, you don't make um, an opiate addict. You really are born that way to have that predisposition. And so, you know, we've had, now that I've learned that, I actually, uh, have a lot of mercy and grace towards our son and I tell him I'm like Hunter you know you didn't ask for this you were given this brain that struggles with this but you do have a responsibility to it I'm um, just like I didn't ask for the autoimmune problem that I struggle with and yet I have a responsibility to treat it or not today Hunter's choosing to treat um, his drug addiction with drugs instead of recovery um, over the next few years, you know, we would see a little bit of moodiness, um, definitely saw now what I call the attic brain, where there was this intense um, focus, whether it's on a video game or on a TV show or on music, like intense and could not do anything else at that time. However, very brilliant. Um, Hunter is a gifted guitarist. Um, really just a gift given from God because we don't have those abilities and he's never been trained. And so we saw this gifting in him and we knew that that part of his brain, um, you know, that eclectic side was in full force. So we accepted that, you know, he was different. He was musically inclined. We were not. Um, so when he first, you know, started going through this little, it seemed like a depression, we thought that some of it might just be normal. He's 14, you know, hormones kicking in. Um, but then we found out that he had tried pot and he had smoked pot at church of all things. And so um, the thing was, is that when he uh, smoked pot, it just ended up lighting up his brain where it wasn't like, oh, well, I just want to smoke pot now. It feels good. It's what else is out there. So it was a gateway drug for him. And for some it is, and for many it isn't. 
But my goodness for Hunter, the parents know best about these things. And when we come back, we're going to learn more about this journey, this marriage journey between Yvonne and Rich, and now including their son Hunter, an addict, who, as we learn, didn't want to treat his addiction with anything but more drugs and not recovery and not treatment. And what a, what a struggling son can do to a marriage, what a family member can do to break cracks in a marriage. Well, we're going to learn more about that here on our Relationship Hour. We continue with Yvonne and Rich's story here on Our American Stories. 